0: Before we enter uh, this sermon, more so because I, I just feel like I need it this morning more than anything. Um, so, But before we do that, I'm just going to read Job chapter 3, verses 23. Why is life given to those with no future? Those God has surrounded with difficulties. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you one more time. We want to just express to you, Lord, that we come here seeking your word, seeking to encounter you, and to be taught by your spirit, because we believe that your spirit is the only source of truth, and it guides us in our lives to become closer to you, and it guides us in the difficult moments that we might not be able to see you either. I pray, Lord God, that we all leave here encountering your grace, Father. We all leave here acknowledging the one truth that we stick to, Lord, and that's that your son gave his life for us. I pray, Lord God, that no matter what, we stick to this truth and remember it every time that we are together and every time that we are apart. In your precious son's name, I pray. Amen. So, I mean, you guys are probably being made aware by Natalie and some that have asked me. I've I've kind of gone, I'm kind of going through something medically. It's a little, it's small in my opinion. Um, it's something that's recurred again and might require a, sm- a small surgery. It's not life-threatening, it's, uh, it's not painful. Uh, at this point, it's not even really a massive worry for me. But four years ago, I did go undergo a pretty, pretty decent surgery and um, a bit of that trauma still lingers in my mind. But recently when I came from the doctor, I, and you know he confirmed that this is what's going on again, I was driving home and I, and I felt a little bit of despair. You know, and I wasn't going to God, well, why is this happening to me, God? Or I wasn't angry at God. At this point, I could just simply thank him that, that he was with me. And I could simply thank him that even though I was emotionally a bit down, I prefer to go through anything with God than without God. But what it got me thinking about was this whole idea of suffering. When life gets really difficult, whenever we are caused a physical pain, emotional pain or, or whatever else the case may be. Now I know this is a common topic and I know that we have all probably heard countless sermons on this. We've read probably a lot of books. We all probably have our own answers for this. But the reason why I'm bringing this up again is because this is something that's so prevalent in our world, but it's also a prevalent question that everyone continues to ask whether they believe in God or don't believe in God. Now I listen to, to his podcast, and usually they have, they have a Christian, and then they have an atheist. And they have different topics and, and they will talk about them or debate them. But this is another uh, issue that keeps coming up. It's around suffering. The atheist will always bring up, why does a loving God allow this? Why does he allow this to happen? Doesn't your Bible tell us His love? I've also heard others who don't believe in God. They don't want to have anything to do with this God because suffering is present. In the world. And then I have people who actually ask me about the causes and and all that stuff. And I, and, I, and I really struggle sometimes to answer this question. Not because I don't have my own answers to this, but because in our fast food society, we want the quick, short, sharp answers. We want simple answers to difficult questions. We're not prepared to wrestle with the difficult questions in society? The answers don't always come easily, especially when it comes to large topics like this. And we're so conditioned in our society to want things now. And we apply that to a lot of different ways that we think and the ways that we want answers. You know, I found out how conditioned I am by this society of wanting everything fast in my car, I literally just have to push my button once and my window goes up and down. At work, in the work car, I had to hold the button for it to go up and I was just losing it. Why am I losing? I'm losing a few seconds. And in my mind, I was like, what is going on? <laughs> However, the easy questions and the, and the easy is, is not where God wants us to sit. Now, in saying all this, how difficult it is to answer a question like this. The Bible is my source of comfort and it's my source of answers, as well as I know it is for all of us. And what I love about the Bible is it doesn't sugarcoat life in any way or form, it does quite the opposite. It pushes us for it to be actually be difficult in other ways. So, my hope today is that you leave somewhat satisfied. This is a very difficult thing to answer and wrestle with. And the quick answers are cheap answers. And I don't want to give cheap answers. It's like a sugar rush. You know, you're, you're high for a little while and then you just crash. But it's a sustained diet that keeps you going. So the same is to do with any difficult question that we deal with when it comes to God. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I listened to a podcast and... I'm subject to a lot of atheistic thought, which I quite enjoy. I enjoy this because it strengthens me as a believer. Um, it's, it's also fascinating about all the evidence that gets laid out about our own belief systems as, as Christians, putting them to the test and how they actually stand to the test. At least in my own opinion, they do. But what I also enjoy about an atheist point of view, not because I agree with it, but what they do, they identify to me the barriers of what them and what others in society face upon coming to God. They put a spotlight on it for us to answer. And it's the same constant questions and barriers that keep coming up around ...going through difficult times and suffering... ...which is why I want to touch on it today. Now here are some of the... There's a a lot of different views from an atheist perspective... ...but I want to bring some of them up. So one says... Ben, I don't know if you want to put it up. We have developed pain receptors... ...negative emotions and other tools... ...with which to involuntarily suffer... ...because suffering brings our attention to the fact that something is wrong. When I suffer, I know there's a reason, but I also know that there's no ultimate purpose for it, or to rephrase, no reason why I should continue to suffer. My suffering is a symptom of some situation I may be able to change, so I try to change it. Uh, One other view is, while the concept and definition of suffering are certainly man-made and can vary from one person to person, I would certainly say that th- it is not pointless and it does have some biological value. From a strictly Darwinian sense, suffering must provide some benefit. Perhaps it strengthens or enhances the biochemical process that involves the kingship of love. This, turns, uh, this in turn fosters behaviours like strength in numbers, clans or cooperation, or it can be that my suffering allows me to better relate to others who are suffering. So these are very Western, scientific, naturalist kind of views. But they indicate that suffering serves a purpose or no purpose. And if it does serve a purpose, it's for our survival. It's for advancement as humans. But there's no spirituality attached to it. But then when you look at other cultures around the world, they all have a view on suffering... And they maybe do it, maybe we don't agree, but at least they have views to offer to people to understand it. So some cultures would say that suffering is a result of failing to live right in a moral way. There is a worldview that suffering is a result of karma, whereby each life brings with it deeds of the previous life, and if you are suffering now, that it's a result of your previous life's sins. And to relieve ongoing suffering is to live with decency now to prevent future suffering. Another worldview of suffering that we, um, that's explained is that we suffer because of our unfulfilled desires and the solution to extinguishing these desires is through changing the mindset that alleviates suffering. Meditation. Um, quietness. Some see suffering as just a punishment of a certain god, a deity. Then we've got older, older traditions of uh, looking at suffering. So in pagan cultures in New- northern Europe, some believed at the end of time the gods and the heroes would be killed by monsters in a battle of Ragnarok. In this society, the highest virtue was to stand tough in the face of any hopeless situation. Meet it head on. So these cultures teach worldviews that prepare in one way or another their people to reconcile suffering to their reality. What about our society's view on suffering, other than the atheist naturalistic one? Well, it depends on who you ask. But it seems evident, especially in a more secularised society, that we don't want anything to do with it. We don't we, we don't want to suffer. We're, we're less equipped to deal with it in a secular society. Something wrong? Here's a pill. Think of, think of when life goes wrong for a lot. We fall into depression so quickly. We have, we have everything in this society. Despite what we may think, we can actually express our views freely, look the way we want, We've got health care, And yet, what this has done is it's also led us to feel that we are entitled to everything as well. We are an entitled society where if things go wrong, we automatically start to crumble. We're told from early age, you can achieve whatever you want. You can live a good life. And that's not necessarily false. But then the other part of that is never reinforced either. And the hardest thing about suffering is when difficult times do arise, you begin to ask the very tough questions. Why is this happening to me? You can sometimes feel completely abandoned, feel anger, sad or depressed. The feelings that we have in troubled times do significantly impact us. God, why are you doing this to me? Don't you care about me? Well, I can honestly tell you that if these are the questions that you might ask in times of trouble, you're not alone. You're not alone because others around you question and ask these things. But so did so did people in the Bible, and there's one man I'm thinking of in particular, and we all probably know his story quite well and that's Job. Now the book of Job deals with an innocent sufferer, a man who is described as completely righteous and yet he suffers immensely. The questions and feelings that our society ask, why is this happening to me, where's God, anger, abandonment is what he felt himself. How do we deal with suffering for those who know the book well a, a common theme is his patience but it's, I think that's so much easier to say and yet so hard to actually live out because even Job lost his patience if we're honest with ourselves we'll always say we endure with patience and not get angry with God but Job proves to us that it's quite human to do so So I wish to show you that patience in suffering is a result of something much bigger. For when we do understand why and what is happening, there is one thing that we can count on. And I'll get to that at the end. So the book of Job has 42 chapters. It's a long story. And it's written very much like a story, almost like a play. It even starts off, there once was a man named Job from the land of was. We have the first two chapters that that set the scene for the rest of the book. And then a long period of time of anguish and suffering. Job, who is trying to figure out what's happening to him. Even, Even his mates and him debate the situation for a really long time. Not only is the person going through the trouble, questioning and debating but it's also the ones around him who are questioning what's going on. And then Job demands an audience of God, which he gets. By all accounts of his story, it helps us reflect on who God is to us. There's a, lot, there's a strong sense of being religious in the story. Because the Old Testament very much associates blessings with riches. You have faith with God when you have riches. If the people did all the right things and were good, well, then they had the favor of God. But Job did do all the right things, and yet he loses everything. So I'm just going to read Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 5,000 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in the entire area. Job's sons would, would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended... Sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, Perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. So Job is described as blameless. The word that is used there is complete integrity. Stayed away from evil. By all accounts, this guy is an exemplary man followed the law to the T. His children had gatherings and feasts, and out of fear that they may have done something wrong, he, as a caring dad, he offers burnt offerings for them. By all accounts, this is a guy who loves his family, fears God, and doesn't seem to do anything wrong. Certainly someone by our standards who we would say deserves the blessings that he has. And then we keep going as the story progresses. Verses 6 to 12. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that goes on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant, Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is, but reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. We're introduced in this part now of God and and Satan, Satan literally meaning the accuser. And we have a gathering in in the heavenly realms and Israel often imagined God holding courts in heaven and the heavenly beings being around him. So Yahweh God says to Job, where have you come from? What's Satan doing in heaven? I don't want to get too much into this, but um, in, it's, it's, it can be very confusing. But there are other scriptures that can also be confusing in this sense. In Luke 16, where Abraham is talking from heaven to the, to the rich man in hell. The Bible doesn't give us a lot. However, the scene here is, is central to the Job story. And the author is not bogging down in details around this. But the purpose of this is to set the scene for the actual uh, theology of the whole story. So we have the accuser before God. And before he even speaks, God challenges him. Have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him. He fears God and stays away from evil. And Satan's reply is, well, of course he does. You Give him everything. He has every reason to be loyal to you. But take all his stuff away and he he won't want anything to do with you. In fact, he'll even curse you. And God agrees to allow Satan to take away all his possessions, even his loved ones, his children. Now, to the modern reader, this is is difficult to to grasp. It's almost cringeworthy. However, the important thing to... To look at here is, one, God allows this. It happens with his permission. The story of Job no way shows God to be out of control in any of the situations within this story. And the Bible does not construe that God is ever defeated by evil and that evil can ever tempt him. It was God who set things in motion here if anything, it points to God as a sovereign God who's in control of everything. So Job loses all his possessions. And in verse 20, Job is experiencing serious grief. But he says, the Lord gave me what I had, and he takes away. Now, this isn't a flippant comment, just, ah, it is what it is, you know. But this is actually a statement of praise that God is with me in the tough and he's with me in the good. So that's his first trial. And then the second one goes, um, in the second chapter, there's much of the same scene again. One day, the members of the heavenly courts came again to present themselves before the Lord and the accuser Satan came with them. The Lord says again, where have you come from, Satan? Satan answers the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears and stays away from evil, and he has maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause." Satan replied to the Lord, Skin for skin, a man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out now and take his health, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right. Do with him as you please, the Lord said, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. So Satan failed the first time. Now, the disease of choice is left to him and he chooses a skin disease, which is really significant to that culture. When you you had a skin disease... It was, it was visible, and the public just were repulsed by you. You just looked disgusting to them. Not only was your physical appearance disgusting to society, but it was a visible sign of divine displeasure. Surely this guy has done something wrong to God. And it just shows the cunningness of Satan, because He uses a disease that's not only going to cause pain to Job, but he uses it to mislead those around him as well. He takes this as an opportunity to target the belief systems of those around Job as well. When when we watch people suffer, does it not make us also question our own belief systems? We have in chapter 2, verses 2 to 8, the famous wife who tells Job to curse God and die. Isn't this... Isn't this something that a non-believing society would say to someone with a belief in God going through suffering or a belief? Well, it clearly doesn't care about you. Just give up. Your religion is nothing. And we enter into into chapter 3. And Job's, or chapter 2, sorry. um, Job's friends come and visit him because they hear that their mate is not well. So they go and see him. Now, the interesting thing about this book is 42 chapters. And now from verse 3 to 38, it's literally people trying to figure out what's going on with Job's suffering. In chapter 3, Job curses the day that he was born. In verse 26, he says, I have no peace, no quietness, no rest. Only trouble comes. Don't we feel the same way in trials? We just can't see that light. He's at a point. He just can't take it anymore. And then his friends are an extra burden to him as well. Why? As I mentioned above, good conduct and good religious behavior equals favor from God. Job's friends excuse him accuse him of conducting some egregious sins or even a little sin, but something, he's done something wrong to be going through this. Chapter 11, verses 13 to 16, a friend gives advice to pray and repent and all will go back to normal. But Job is so frustrated with his friends throughout because they are completely misreading the situation. And in chapter 31, Job is convinced that he is innocent of being of good religious conduct. It has nothing to do with suffering, as he is the most upright man in the time. Job believes that if God judged him, he would find no wrongdoing in him. Throughout the chapters of when he's figuring out what's going on, He voices his displeasure to God throughout as he's voicing his displeasure towards his friends. Now God appears to him. He demands an audience from him and God appears. God appears in response to Job. Now from face value, the way he appears, it comes across really harsh, a lot of rhetorical questions. But God's response is much more is full of, is full of grace. Did God have to appear to his suffering servant? No, He didn't have to appear. But He comes to him. Probably didn't expect, Joe probably didn't even expect Him to come. He maybe thought that if God appeared, He would, He would put His case forward and He would be justified of, of all that He's done, because, He thought. He had done nothing wrong. Now God brings Job to a different conclusion in the end. When we look at his story, he never finds out what happened behind the scenes. God doesn't tell him that he had a, there was a meeting with, with Satan. And he never finds that out. God's response to Job is: Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. I'm just going to read a few chapters, a few verses. So, so who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. God's response is not what Job expected. He is sovereign over all things. And he shows Job that he sets the parameters of everything that goes on. The point that God is making is that we are not God. and All things are subject to him. Can we run the universe any better than what God can? We definitely think we can sometimes. And we try. I think about a story of of a lady who was a Christian lady and she was arrested on a warrant it was just it was a clerical error but nonetheless arrested and sent to jail and didn't understand why she had to go through this suffering no criminal record never never been inside a jail never exposed to anything like that and it took a deep emotional toll on her so she's forced into prison with a bunch of criminals who have varying levels of uh, criminal behavior behind them. But the amazing part about this story is she ends up to speaking to them about God, about Christ in her life. because That's all she has at that point. And although her suffering at the time may not have been clear to her, once she was out a short time later she was grateful for it now job recognizes his ignorance as well and he says in chapter 42 verses 5 and 6 i had only heard about you before talking to god but now i have seen you with my own eyes i take back everything i said and i sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance See, Job had really heard about God, but never seen him until now. And the experience of seeing God God himself, encountering God with his eyes, changed his heart. He thought he knew better about life, but he realizes he's wrong. His own efforts to justify himself through good deeds was not what God sought. His own perfection didn't, didn't guarantee him good fortune. So what are we to take away from this book? There's so many complex themes and a lot of things going on. Well, we have three options when dealing with suffering or trials. We can take the view of Job and of his friends, following God's laws to the T, relying on that, to divert suffering from our lives. We can rely on conduct to get into God's good books. I can recall so many times when I've gone through difficult times and I've just thought, what have I done, God, to fail you? What am I doing wrong now? This is what happens when we rely on our own selves, on our own justification. We think often, I've repented now, God. I follow Christ. And then why are you still allowing this to happen? Sometimes we don't even realize how much we rely on our deeds until affliction actually comes our way. Or two, we can take the view that bad things happen whether I believe in God or not. As evil happens at our hands, as well as unknown um, explanations for it as well. Therefore, I don't wish to align myself to a God that allows bad things to happen. This supposed loving God is so hypocritical because he allows people to suffer. We want a God that we can manage. Or well, we have the third option. We encounter God like Job did as a sovereign God, we encounter the gospel of grace that says nothing you do can possibly gain you any favor to remove all suffering, but also says that you can do nothing to remove you from my love despite my, your afflictions. The gospel says that suffering of trial or trials do not say that you have found disfavor from God. The gospel even calls for suffering for its own sake. You see, God did not withhold the cup of suffering even from his own son, Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate innocent person who suffered the wrath of God that those who are in him will never suffer. We see in the word of God and throughout history that Christ's followers encountered in the past and still encounter tough times. Yet it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace that is freely given to all who seek or want to accept it, that sustains them. Do we still question God when life is tough about his presence in in our lives? Do we still think about what have I done to deserve this? If we are, these are honest questions. But we're also forgetting what the gospel does in us as well. And it tells us that we can't do anything to gain any more favor from God. But it also keeps us as well. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight twenty nine, 29, he says, Come to me, all who are weary, and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul. The gospel of Christ gives rest to the soul no matter what the circumstances you find yourself in. The apostles experienced this as others have. Has grace given rest to your soul? We as a community of grace need to show grace to others who are suffering as well. We are not to be like Job's friends of condemnation, but those who point to the way of grace that is the only power that can grant rest for our souls. My hope this morning is that we learn to suffer with grace and not suffer with anything other than understanding that what we have from Christ It's far more precious and no one can take it away. May the Lord bless his word.